Amen. Let us turn our confessional reading this evening, Lord's Day 23, page 224 in the Forms and Prayers. Question and answers uh, 59, uh, 60, and 61. We're looking especially at 59 and 60 tonight. But we'll read, we'll read each of these three question and answers. I'll read the question list together. Say the answers beginning with question uh, 59. But how does it help you now that you believe all this? that I am righteous in Christ before God and an heir to life everlasting. How are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ, even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments, of never having kept any of them, and of still being inclined toward all evil, nevertheless, without any merit of my own, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner, and as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. If only I accept this gift with a believing heart. Why do you say that through faith alone you are righteous? Not because I please God by the worthiness of my faith, for only Christ's satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness are my righteousness before God, and I can receive this righteousness and make it mine in no other way than by faith alone. It's the confession we hold in common. Let us turn now to the Holy Word of God, Matthew chapter 5. We come back. To the Beatitudes, we were we looked at uh, Beatitudes four, five, and six for those who were here last Sunday evening, and uh, the uh, theme of of those Beatitudes uh, went with the uh, theme of Lord's Day 22, and now we have a, a theme of humility, uh, which fits with Lord's Day 23, and especially we'll look at parts of question and answer 59 and 60. And so we'll read the Beatitude uh, passage as a, as a whole. Uh, once again, verses 1 to 12, but we're going to be looking especially at the first three Beatitudes at verses 3, 4, and 5 this evening. But let us uh, begin our reading at verse 1, uh, Matthew uh, 5, page 1,029 in the Bibles under the seats. Let's hear the word of God, Matthew 5, beginning at verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. 
And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So far the reading. Grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our Lord endures forever. Dear brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34, is one of a relatively small number of Old Testament texts which is quoted directly in the New Testament. And then it's part of a relatively smaller number yet, which is quoted directly more than once in the New Testament. Both 1 Peter 5, verse 5, and James 4, verse 6, quoting directly from that proverb, speak these words. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. For pride is a sin, related to and at the root of many other sins. But humility is a virtue related to and at the root of many virtues. And humility is seen here as a uniting theme of the first three Beatitudes, even in a special and essential way in the very first Beatitude. This is these These words which emphasize humility are where Jesus begins his Beatitudes, his description of God's blessed ones. This is God's work. This is God's grace. God gives grace to the humble. This is God's blessing for his blessed, humble ones. And so our theme this evening is this truth. God blesses the humble. And we're looking... Our our three points are are the first three Beatitudes. First, lowly hearts, verse 3. And then sanctified tears, verse 4. And then gentle attitudes, verse 5. Well, we, We begin with lowly hearts. If you are poor in spirit, if you are poor in spirit, this means that you are a humble sinner ready to repent of your sins. That this is true at the very heart Level. It is no accident that this is the first beatitude in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. I have a sinful heart. As it says in question and answer 60, I have grievously sinned against all God's commandments, never kept any of them, and am still inclined toward all evil. 
And so I and all sinners, we, we all must repent of our sins before God. This is what the first beatitude so foundationally relates to, that this must be our, our very heart attitude. We must be poor in spirit. This is where the message of the preaching of John the Baptist and then Jesus himself began. Look at uh, back at chapter 3. Verses 1 and 2. Maybe you have to go back just a page. Where does, where does the ministry of John the Baptist begin? How is it summarized? John or Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then how is the ministry of Jesus summarized? Look now at chapter 4, verse 17. Chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is where the message of the Christian gospel begins. Repent. Repent of your sins. Be poor in Spirit, Acknowledge that at the very level of your heart and acknowledge at the heart level that you need God. Be humble before God in your very heart. Now, to be poor in spirit does not mean to be weak in a general sense. It does not mean to be weak in the general sense. As D.A. Carson once helpfully put it, quote, to be poor in spirit is not to lack courage, but to acknowledge spiritual bankruptcy, end of quote. Lowliness does not equal weakness in that sense. It takes greater courage to acknowledge weakness than to pretend to have strength. So now coming back to what poor in spirit does mean. If you are poor in spirit, that is a picture of humility. God's people are humble people. And that is so foundationally emphasized here. And so now, when we think about Jesus Christ, in one sense, the very beginning of being poor in spirit cannot apply to Jesus Christ because there are no sins to repent of. But when we think of the broader sense of humility as the whole, Jesus Christ is, of course, the perfect example of being poor in spirit in that sense, even as Jesus is the perfect example of all righteousness. And so Jesus is the one who came willing to take on the form of a humble servant. He is the one who existed before he was born. He existed as high and eternal God, and yet he comes and he is born in the form of weak man. He's born in a humble state. He's born in that manger, that nice word for a feeding trough. And then throughout his life, Jesus demonstrates perfect humility, humility to the point of dying on the cross Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, because of what Christ has done, though my own spirit is spiritually bankrupt, I can be rich 
because of what his humility has accomplished. So we read a little bit from question and answer 60. Let's pick it back up. Nevertheless, without any merit of my own, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner. When we are poor in spirit, when we repent of our sins and then we trust in Jesus Christ, well, there is the true path from poverty to riches. It's from the poverty, the poor spirit, which acknowledges spiritual bankruptcy and then trusts in the only perfect, humble one who humbled himself so that we might be rich by suffering on the cross for our sins. And so, through Christ's work of salvation, what is the promised blessing for those who are poor in spirit? For theirs is the kingdom of God. Now, many of the blessings of faith will not be experienced, or it's better to say they will not be experienced fully until we are brought to the new heavens and the new earth. But we do already have a taste now of spiritual blessings, and we are already made rich in Christ and in his work and in his blood. And so we sometimes speak about this, uh, theologians sometimes speak about this with, with these phrases, the already and the not yet which is thankfully one of those uh, theological expressions which is easy to understand. The already, what we already have, and the not yet, what we don't yet have. The already and the not yet. And Jesus speaks of the already and the not yet in the very structure of the Beatitudes. Because look at the first blessing. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And now look at the There's probably eight Beatitudes. You counted eight or nine. But look at the balance. This is why we should probably say there are eight Beatitudes. Look at how verse 10 ends. For theirs is, the end of verse 10, the kingdom of heaven. Present tense in the beginning. Present tense and and the exact same blessing promised in the end in verse 10. What are all of the promises in between. In between, look at the tense, they're all in the future. Shall be comforted. Shall inherit the earth. Shall be satisfied, etc. And so even in the very structure of the Beatitudes, Jesus is speaking to us about the reality of the already. The kingdom is yours. You can taste the blessings of God's promises and righteousness in Christ and salvation by the work of the Holy Spirit. You can taste it now already, but we know that the full experience of God's blessings is not yet. And in the very way that Jesus speaks of the promises for God's blessed ones, he relates that already and that not yet to us. Well now, brothers and sisters, let's come to our second point. Sanctified tears. Blessed are those who mourn. Now where do the tears of God's blessed ones begin? Well, just as for those who were here last week, 
We spoke about how hungering and thirsting for righteousness must begin with a hungering and thirsting for our own righteousness, a hungering and thirsting for our own sins to be taken away. So when we think about where mourning begins, it begins with mourning for our own sins. That's where God's blessed one's mourning begins. Please turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Go through the Gospels, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. How does the Apostle Paul speak about godly grief? 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Godly grief, godly sanctified tears begin with mourning for our own sins. Begins with repentance. And now when we read 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10, we're also reminded that there's such a thing as tears that are not sanctified tears. Uh, There's such a thing as worldly grief. There's a contrast between godly grief that produces repentance and worldly grief that produces death. What is what is a worldly tear? It's a sorrow over the loss of of things. It's a sorrow over the loss of personal reputation. Without without taking our poor spirit before God, it's saying, no, I should have an exalted spirit. It's it's things such as this. And so without trying to cover all the ground of what worldly grief is, let's hear a, let's hear a helpful summary from the Reverend Kevin DeYoung. Quote, sorrow over loss of money does not bring it back. Sorrow over personal failure does not make it all better. Sorrow over negative reactions from others does not make them like us again. But sorrow over sin, here's the contrast coming back to godly grief, but sorrow over sin can lead to repentance. Repentance leads to mercy. Mercy means a fresh start. End of quote. Now, brothers and sisters, we're not going to spend as much time on this But as we consider another thing that sanctified tears include, it's not just sorrow over our own sins, it's also sorrow over sins in general. And again, this mirrors, for those who were here last week, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. There's also a hunger, a thirst, a desire that we would see more righteousness in the world in a general sense. And so we can also go to or think of texts such as Psalm 119, verse 136. My eyes shed streams of tears... Because people do not keep your law. Let's begin with mourning over our own sins, but let us shed tears, sanctified tears, another form of godly grief when we see the sins all around us in this world. Well, with that, let's look at a third thing that sanctified tears include. Because mourning on this earth also includes grief over the effects of sin, such 
as disease and death and all kinds of suffering. These are things which may not be directly related to sin, but things which sin has brought into this world. And godly tears, the mourning of God's blessed ones, includes tears over the the effects of sin. Now, as with our first point, when we begin by thinking about repentance, mourning over our own sins, again, that's something that Jesus Christ does not do because Jesus Christ does not sin. But when we think about the other uh, two uh, meanings of, of sanctified tears that we have considered, does Jesus... Do we have any specific examples of Jesus weeping over the sins of others? What does Jesus do when he looks over Jerusalem and he considers the coming destruction which will come because of their sin and their remaining rebellion? Jesus looks over Jerusalem, Luke chapter 19, and Jesus weeps. Jesus weeps over the sins of of others. And what about the what about the effects that sin brings into this world? Does Jesus weep over the effect of sin, such as disease and death? When Jesus comes to his friends, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and Lazarus is no longer with them. Jesus sees Mary weeping. And Jesus was deeply moved. John 11:33. And then John 11:35, Jesus wept. Jesus shed tears not for his own sins because there were none of his own sins, but Jesus wept over the sins of others in a particular way, over the sins of those who would remain in rebellion, leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, which Jesus knew was coming and prophesied about. And Jesus wept over the effect of sin. And so Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. How, how, how sweet is this simply stated promise? Beloved, you come to God in true faith. The day will come when you will not need to mourn over your sins because God will take your sins away. You will no longer walk in any sins and the sins that you have walked in will be removed from you as far as the east is from the west because you will be credited with Christ's own righteousness. And all of the other reasons to mourn on this world, all of the effects of sin, all of the parting of loved ones, older than us, younger than us, Everything will be renewed. Every tear will be wiped away. And there will be no more reason for tears. Blessed are those who mourn. They will be comforted. Let's come to our third point.
point, gentle attitudes. God's blessed ones are also called meek. Now, brothers and sisters, meekness, as it has been said more than once, is one of those words that is not the easiest of words to define, but it's certainly related to the first two Beatitudes. It certainly includes a humble and gentle attitude, even though, like with poor in spirit, meek does not simply equal weak. Now, the humble and gentle attitude, which the word meek does call us to, it includes something of our posture before God, but in some ways, this certainly we must be meek, we must be humble before God, but in some ways, this third beatitude takes us more into the realm of our interaction with, uh, with our fellow human beings. Uh, or if we consider it this way, to be poor in spirit, that very much takes us before God. Only God knows what our heart is. Man cannot judge the heart. But now when we speak of meekness, we're speaking of a, of a more visible attribute. We're thinking of something that relates more to our interactions with others because other people can see if we are meek or not, even though they can't see our heart, which would be at the root of leading to us having a meek attitude. But you see, you see how there is a progression in these first three Beatitudes. And we're coming now to something which is more... Uh, more in emphasis of how we interact with other people. It's something which is a more visible attribute. And so as we uh, consider this movement, this uh, outward uh, moving stream in these first three Beatitudes, but still a central focus on humility, to be meek includes being humble, uh, we can think of how uh, some have summarized this. J.C. Ryle once said it this way, that meek, those who are meek, quote, can bear injuries without resentment, end of quote. And brothers and sisters, that is not easy. Or uh, let us put it this way, even as God would work in our hearts and humble our hearts to confess our sins before him, because we still struggle with sin, it's going to be very difficult for us to demonstrate meekness in our life. It is going to be difficult. Or even we can think of, of, of this, that in some ways, in some ways, it's easier to repent of our sins before God than to have one of our brothers and sisters come to us and correct us face-to-face. -face. I'm not talking about the fundamentals. I'm not talking about the essentials. But I'm, I'm talking about how in a certain external way we can begin the morning praying before God and saying, Father, forgive my sins. And then three hours later, we can be standing before a fellow brother and sister and hear some kind of word of correction and not receive it with meekness. Do you see the flow of this psalm? John Stott, speaking about that and, and, and this, this meekness, which is able to bear injuries without resentments, he once illustrated it and elaborated upon it in this way. Quote, It's no problem for me to call myself a great sinner, 
but let somebody else come up to me after church and call me a miserable sinner, and I want to punch him in the nose. And he is illustrating this reality of how there is a, there is a certain kind of hypocrisy in this, brothers and sisters. We're willing to confess our sins in prayer before God, but it is very difficult for us to hear any kind of correction face to face. Meekness is hard. Now, as we think about our interactions with other people, part of why this is difficult is because other people are sinners too. It's part of why this is difficult. So, uh, the corrections that come, unlike the the perfect double-edged sword of the word of God, the corrections that come from others may not always be fully on point. Or maybe they're on point, but they're not delivered with uh, gentleness. And so part of why it's difficult to receive correction from others is because others are sinners too. But part of why it's difficult to receive correction from others is because it is very hard to be meek. It is very hard to be humble. It is very hard to receive corrections and encouragements still. We are to do this one to another. We are called to restore the one who is caught in any transgression with a spirit of gentleness, as the Apostle Paul says to the churches in Galatia, in Galatians 6. And in a broad sweeping way, we are to encourage one another and build one another up, as the Apostle Paul says to the churches in Thessalonica. What are some ways, brothers and sisters, that we might uh, combat the difficulty of receiving an encouraging word? One way that we might combat this is by uh, by uh, cutting it off at the pass, so to speak, by asking others to speak a word of encouragement to us. And so if there's a matter of Christian wisdom where, where we're struggling saying, I, I'm, I'm not growing in this the way I should be. Instead of waiting for a brother and sister to come up and give us a word of encouragement, let's go to mature brothers and sisters and ask brother, sister, especially brothers going to brothers and sisters going to sisters in the pattern of Titus 2. I'm struggling with this. Can you, can you share some, some wisdom with me in how I can grow here? And you see how by asking the question, it's easier to be meek because we've put ourselves in that position before we even hear a word spoken to us. Or even going beyond what we might call matters of wisdom, matters of needs for growth. And for that I can say, are you meek enough to ask a mature believer for help in matters of wisdom? Let's go one step deeper. What if, what if you're struggling with a, an intense sin problem? Are you meek enough to go and ask, especially brothers asking brothers and sisters asking sisters, are you meek enough to go and ask for help, for accountability, for spiritual encouragement from others? And there are many sins which are hidden. So that even if 
we have brothers and sisters who would be bold enough to come up to us and speak a word of encouragement without us asking. There are many sins which are so easily hidden that they would never know what to come up and say anyway if we didn't, in a spirit of meekness, reach out and ask for help before the word is ever spoken. And so, uh, brothers and sisters, let us begin with the foundational heart attitude that we need before God and then let that be the root that grows out to uh, even the character of Christian meekness in our interactions also with our fellow brothers and sisters in a special way. Because an unbeliever cannot give spiritual encouragement. But now, as is the repeated pattern with the Beatitudes, we have not only the description of God's blessed ones, we have also the promise of blessing. For they shall inherit the earth. The world tends to think that the aggressive, the tyrannical, the so-called great, they are the ones who will end up with everything. They'll take it or they'll get it. They'll have it. They will inherit. But scripture says, the meek, the humble, will inherit the earth. And unlike the temporary hoarding of the tyrants of this earth, the inheritance for God's blessed ones is an eternal inheritance because the the inheritance that God promises is related to even life everlasting. Question and answer 59. But how does it help you now that you believe all this? All of this referring back to the summary of the Apostles' Creed in the previous Lord's Day. How does it help you now that you believe all this? I can't just know it. This is one of those places where the question is very important. I need to believe it. I need to be one who repents and believes. But as you take these essential doctrines, as you repent and believe as one of God's blessed ones to whom the kingdom of heaven already belongs, how does it help you? That I am present, righteous in Christ before God and future and heir to life everlasting. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven,